The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, innovation, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Now, here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome, Love in Action Nation and the world to another episode. We are now heard in 100 countries around the world. I'm so glad you could join us. If this is your first time here, we hold space every week for deep and meaningful conversations with the world's top influencers, leaders, and experts about the powerhouse principles of actionable love. Love that will transform your business, your work culture, lead to innovation, create business impact, and generate profits. And we talk about love that's also going to make the world a better place for our future and our children's future. I'm excited about my guest because he defines all of this, and that is Ankur Gopal. Ankur is the CEO of Interapt, an award-winning mobile and wearable technology solutions partner. In 2014, Ankur was inducted into the Kentucky Entrepreneur Hall of Fame and was named one of business first 40 business leaders under 40. He holds business degrees from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. And today he is on a mission and he's using his company and his voice for a noble social cause. He is fighting a skills gap, which is a major barrier to finding qualified employees in the tech industry. And to fill that gap, Encore is tapping into Middle America's poorest neighborhoods, which have been traditionally been left behind by the tech economy. He's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times. He has spoken at TEDx stages. And oh, he's also been on The Daily Show. So we're gonna talk about what he's doing and what his business is doing to impact the world. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, Encore. So glad you're here. Thank you, Marcel. Good to be here. So let's let's peel the layers here like an onion and as you tell your story, because you have an, a compelling story. First of all, let's start with Interapt. Mm-hmm. How would you describe your company? Yeah, Interapt, we're essentially an IT services firm. We, we provide solutions primarily for large uh, enterprise, but also medium and small businesses, primarily focused in a couple of key areas. We do mobile app development and web application development. We do uh, UX and UI design. We do data science and in health informatics. Uh, we do robotic process automation, so RPA. Um, so, uh, so a suite of sort of practice areas, if you will, that we, we generally use to, that we sell to large enterprises who have trouble filling gaps and finding expertise. We find our niche to be in those areas. And uh, we, we essentially uh, took a swing at being in Louisville instead of Chicago or San Francisco. We thought we could be a, a little bit more impactful here being one of two companies rather than one of 10,000. So that was kind of the, the genesis of, of why, we, why we decided to start a high-tech company doing what we do in, the, in, uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah. So this is a great segue because I want to set up your story like this. You, 
grew up in 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 Western Kentucky. Yeah. But then you know you, you left to pursue a career because well there's not much of a future in my in my impression mm-hmm. um, in small town middle America if you want to dream big start a business become an entrepreneur and go places right so you even worked at one point in Silicon Valley you had some pretty cushy jobs with some big firms but then yeah. you came back to Louisville to start mm-hmm. interact in your basement mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was back in 2011 encore yeah. you were 35 years old by then mm-hmm. so now mind you this is the coal mining country here so it's the culture of of that part of the world i mean my impression is that if your dad was a coal miner you're probably going to grow up and become a coal miner, right? Not yeah. much there in the way of, of being a tech entrepreneur. So why did you go back? <laughs> well, you're absolutely right. So, so growing up in Owensboro, Kentucky, you know, a lot of my peers, success was defined as being able to get out, right? So we all went to different parts of the countries for college. We take took jobs in different areas. So those were the kind of things that I kind of were... were deemed as successful. Um, and I did exactly that. I went to the University of Illinois. I, wor- I went to the University of Chicago, worked in Ohio, worked in San Francisco, and et cetera. Um, you know, and, and, and I lived a great life. And I did grow up in, in cities like Chicago and D.C. and New York and et cetera. I mean, I learned a lot being from a small town. Um, however, you know, I, I think that I learned something that I think a lot of my peers have also learned, but they're kind of stuck. And that's there's pros and cons everywhere you live. Um, sure, we don't have some things that San Francisco and New York have in Kentucky, but we absolutely have things they don't have either. And, and you know, so those are some of the trade-offs that we decided to, or I decided to make um, when, I, when I decided to move back to Kentucky. Um, I, would definitely, I definitely did not intend to, to start such an impactful sort of movement in, in helping the community and helping find you know, skills and jobs and closing the skills gap, like you mentioned, but, but it kind of organically happened because, you know, as I was, I was in Kentucky needing to find talent and it was hard to come by. That's one of the cons of being in a Kentucky. You can't recruit people from San Francisco and New York as readily as you would think. Uh, And that's a problem. In fact, it became such a problem for me in the war for talent that, I remember in 2015, I conducted 138 interviews for people out of town and seven people accepted. Mm. So, and the reasons they did not accept were things that were pretty irritating. Uh, you don't have a Nordstrom's. Um, I, I, I think that, that uh, you know, I can't ex- imagine myself being a, a JavaScript developer in Kentucky. I mean, it's just, this, these are the things that we were hearing when they would say no to us. Um, and some of them were, were valid. They said, hey, we're, we're, we're looking for a city with a little bigger startup scene. We're looking for a little bit uh, more, um, you know, entrepreneurial activity, blah, blah, blah. All the things that there were some valid reasons. Um, but so then at that point, I just got mildly fed up saying, you know what? I'm tired of trying to get people to, to move to Kentucky. I'm just going to take people who want to live here and skill them up. And, and that kind of came from something we're seeing in our society today where colleges are coming into question about, does your degree get you a job and a lifelong sort of skill? And, and so I was interviewing, you know, history majors, economics majors, folks that 
didn't have a technical degree and wanted to join a technical firm. I mean, and I said, I'd have to, I'm sorry, we can't use your skill set. I remember one, one particular individual who uh, broke down crying saying, this is my 30th interview. And I don't, and I have, and I graduated high in my class. What do I have to do to get a job? I'll do anything. Well, you know, I'm, I, I, while I like to consider myself business minded, I also have a heart. And so I said, all right, tell you what, um, if you sit in this, if you sit in this corner for three months, learn these modules of programming, I'll pay you 10 bucks an hour and every month I'll test you. And if you have any questions, come to me or I'll come or come to my, uh, you know, senior devs and they'll answer them for you. And that person learned it and did it. And so I realized, Hey, that actually works. And in fact, not only did it work, he told his friends and he told other people and they basically started saying the same thing. And some even said, I'll work for free if you give me the three months of training so I can prove myself to you. Mm. So I was seeing this bit of a, I won't call it desperation, but realization that I've got to do something different that gives me a job and a career and a skill because I don't currently have that. So that was the initial crux of what I did when I, when I was here, when I, what spawned me back here is that I just wanted to start a successful company. I mean, that was my dream. My dream was to be a, a successful entrepreneur. Um, giving up the cushy job was primary, as you mentioned, was primary the reason why they did, I just didn't feel like it had, I wasn't fulfilled. I worked on customers that, that you know, are no longer in existence in, in this day and age because of the, you know, they've gone under, been acquired, whatever, you know, so there's, so my, my spreadsheets and PowerPoints I made have kind of gone into the black hole of what did I really do except for, you know, what was told to me. So that's kind of the reason I decided to set on my own. I just felt a bug and I also felt that I wanted to, you know, be my own boss. Um, having said that, it sounds a lot more glamorous than it really is on the <laughs> because it's no easy task, as you know. But that was the reason I decided to leave the cushy job, as you said. Um, honestly, I did not make, I did not have the, the, the social mission lined up at that time, but it eventually organically happened because I realized this is a problem that other people are facing. Like just like the young men and women that cried in my office. Mm. And, and I realized I looked around me and I started to kind of rallying leaders and, and people in, you know, community college leaders, university presidents, uh, other business leaders. And, and I said, we got to do something about this. And, and the, when the response I got was, Oh, we're doing something about it. And I looked at what they were doing they were not, they were, they were, these were not going to work. And I said, I sounded the alarms. I said, Hey, this isn't, this isn't going to work. And people said, no, no, just it'll work. Trust us. And sure enough, in hindsight, it, none of it worked, but except, but my program, I said, I've got to figure out a way to build talent for myself. Otherwise I'll have to leave Kentucky. The, the biggest point where I took on the challenge of what I'm doing is when I had a some I had a consulting firm that works with me on the strategy side and said I said here's my goal here's my targets and what I want to be and don't tell me to move to San Francisco as as an answer and they said okay well we're not going to tell you to move to San Francisco I said great he said well we're going to tell you to move to Dallas or <laughs> or Texas or Austin I was like well <laughs> but they were not wrong because there's a talent shortage in where we were and to achieve our targets we needed to find people. Um, so that's when I said, well, we either can take the onus of building our own talent or going and buying it in a already flourishing market. 
we chose the uh, former and uh, that's been paying off dividends for us ever since. Okay. So you have a talent shortage and you realize, okay, we're going to keep it. We're going to keep things local. At mm-hmm. what point did you realize, hey, this is a great opportunity for this to become a social mission mm-hmm. to help people here in, in, in the local Kentucky area? Well, if you remember my statement, I said I was taking college graduates and yeah. they, they had a degree of some sort. They're in the top 15% of society that goes to college and gets a degree. So it was pretty safe. And th- but around the same time, our governor, um, Steve Bashir came and visited our office and he saw... And he asked my students, hey, you went to the University of Kentucky, you went to the University of Louisville, did you study computer science? They said, no, he studied anthropology. <laughs> and they're like, well, how? He's like, well, how do you work at this? They said, well, Uncor gave us a chance and invested some time and effort into us, and, and, and we're very grateful for that. And he, and he heard that. So about two weeks later, I got a phone call from him and Congressman Hal Rogers who, from Eastern Kentucky, who he told about what we're doing, and he did some research as well. And they asked if I would go do that same program in Eastern Kentucky, where they were mostly high school graduates and mostly people that would have been displaced from the coal economy. And I essentially said, I don't know if that'll work. I really, I mean, my project, my program does it this way, and we've never tried that. And they asked, will you please go and try because people are hurting. And, you know, as we thought about it with my team and my leadership team, I said, I go, look, if this works, this could be a great pipeline for talent that's really impactful for the community. And not to mention, when is the next time a Republican congressman and a Democratic governor conference call you and ask you for a favor, right? <laughs> so, so it was a lot of that. So we said, all right. Well, and so we went and treated it like a, a project, like we know how to do. And we essentially said, okay, if we're going to do this, we went out there and built the program. And we learned a lot of things about the culture and the people there. We knew they were hardworking. We knew they were they were um, kind of didn't have the guidance to figure out their the right path into a into a new career sometimes. And we also knew that some of the education resources weren't up to speed yet. So we knew that it'd be, it, wouldn't, it wasn't going to be solved from the inside out. We had to come in and do it. Um, one other thing we also learned is that uh, a lot of people can't take breaks from life. When you ask someone to retool themselves, it takes months to do that. And if you can't do that without a paycheck, right, that's a problem. So we said, one of the things in my proposal to the, to the governor and Congress was that if I said, all right, I, I've got a plan to do this, but here's some things that I must have. Otherwise it's a deal breaker. And I said, number one, we got to have the funds to pay people while they learn. And that kind of blew everyone, the room's mind. I still remember that. And they, and they, I said, I said, you cannot ask someone to learn something difficult if they're worried about where their kid's next meal is coming from. So so I said, if it's gonna, they gotta, we gotta clear their head of remove barriers, is what I called it, and uh, and 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 that's the only way we can decide if this experiment will work. So the answer, it's a long way of answering your question, but here's where the realization hit that this would work. All right, I got really excited about it. Um, I kept this very quiet. I didn't tell a lot of people. We didn't have any press around it. We just did local advertising for applicants. We got 800 applicants for this program. We paid a stipend every month. We provided training for them with my team, and we set up a shop in Paintsville, Kentucky. About three or four months in, we had some people drop out of the program for various reasons, mostly performance or a life reason. We had one person got deployed to the Afghanistan, things like that happened. Um, but 35 out of the 50 passed. And, and when I saw that metric, I was like, really? That's 
is that is that right? And or is, it, is it three to five or is it thirty five? You know, I was I was kind of <laughs> but because we we weren't sure what to expect, but it was thirty five, and we were very excited about that number because that number eclipsed our our what we thought would happen, what we hoped would happen. I mean, it was our curriculum was pretty much cramming three years of computer science in three months. And these are people who probably had minimal digital literacy to begin with. But the great thing about it was they passed. And that's when I started kind of shouting from the mountaintops, if you will, saying, hey, this works. Eastern Kentucky and Kentucky has got talent and open for business if you're just willing to give the investment in time. And I got, that's when we got, started getting a lot of attention from uh, Congressman Ro Kunna came and visited us. We had people from think tanks in New York and DC come and see it for themselves. And they said, oh my gosh, this really works. Our students did demos. They explained to them algorithms. They, they, were, they were showing that they could participate in the tech economy. And that was super exciting for us. Um, but I also knew when I started this program, I told them there was two risks to this. And we had solved the first risk. And there's two risks that I cannot solve for before the project starts. And you'll have to, we'll have to just commit to going in this together. Um, these are the risks. Number one, I don't know if the folks we select can learn what we're going to teach you because it's hard. I don't know. We're going to try. And the second thing I said was, even if I can train them, who's going to hire them? I don't know where there's, there's no companies out here that are, there's no IBM in the middle of Eastern Kentucky. There's no Accenture. There's no EY, right? So who's going to hire them? And the, and the response I got from the, the leadership team from Eastern Kentucky was, um, well, you just worry about training them. Well, we, we know everybody. We'll get, the, we'll get all the companies here. I said, okay, fine. Um, so I did my part. I trained them, but they, didn't, they weren't able to bring any companies really, really to the table. In fact, um, I, I had been telling them time and time again, I go, these guys are actually going to get this and, and graduate. And they're going to be, we got to find them opportunities because you know, there's already a, a bias between a non-traditional hire who didn't necessarily have a college degree in computer science, but also having a bias from being in a, you know, a region that necessarily doesn't, isn't known for its tech talent or tech prowess. That's another barrier. So we've got to help them with that. Long story short, they, they couldn't find anyone. They didn't really know how to, how to position it, how to sell it, how to get people interested. And so I wound up hiring 25 of them. But I said, these guys deserve a shot. And it, at the time, it was not a it was not the best business decision at the time, but I felt compelled to do it because I believe that I could find them a place in a short order. So I really put the afterburners on my, me and my leadership team to find them opportunities to shine. And we did. Um, and they did as well. So I'll, I'll pause there. I know it's a long-winded answer, but, but the fact is that we were really excited when 35 out of 50 graduated and we knew that these this was not snake oil this was real these guys knew what they were doing and could really participate in the tech economy give me an example of the 35 um uh, kind of a makeup of who they were i'm guessing a lot of them were unemployed underemployed low income yep all the above um we, we we've done some before and after salaries before our program after our program every program we've had between eastern kentucky atlanta parts of Kentucky, et cetera. Um, everyone, the average salary has been below the poverty line. So um, in Kentucky, that's somewhere in the, you know, 20, low 20s or something like that, I believe. But, but the average is generally between about twelve and $18,000 per year of income that they're getting. 
um, which is, as we, as your listeners will know, that's not an easy income to live anywhere, let alone in a, in a place like Kentucky. Um, so the demographic was all ages, 18 to 43. Uh, success varied across the, the, the bell curve. For example, we learned that the younger people in our program got the initial stuff quicker, but more, when it got to the more advanced stuff, they slowed down. The older folks in our, commu- in our, in our program sl- were slow at the beginning, but once they hit their stride, they got the complex stuff quicker. So what the great thing we saw naturally organically happen was that everyone helped each other. Like people help the younger people, help the older people, the older people help the younger. It was all, it was an all or nothing sort of culture, which kind of naturally formed because the common thread from all these people, whether they came from the coal industry or some worked at a Kmart that shut down because uh, of, of, you know, no, no one had money to buy anything there. Uh, The common thread between all of our students was drive. They were, they were praying to the universe or to God or whatever and saying, please give us one chance to change our lot in life. And a lot of them have told me that they looked at us and our mom as that answer to that prayer, which is a pretty daunting thing to hear someone say to you because, you know, we, I mean, we're, we never set out to be that, right? We were trying to solve a business problem. Yeah. Okay. Paint a picture for us of the program. What are these people learning? What are they being skilled for? So our program and our program has expanded since that initial um, pilot. Um, We essentially take people and we treat, we, we, um, we essentially have a software engineering immersive curriculum. So basically it's a, in our world, it's a junior full stack role. They learn a lot about uh, multiple different things to work in a software development shop. So they're learning, you know, things like JavaScript, SQL, Python, R. They're they're learning Mongo. No, they're learning a lot about things when they so when they and they know how to put all these pieces together. So essentially, we looked at it since we come from industry. We looked at the curriculum and said, what is what is the bare minimum someone needs to know to work in our on our teams. And we started from there. And we said, if these people can pass in three months and show aptitude, we can make them, we can take it from there. If they can learn the 60% we need them to learn, we can give them 40% on the job trading uh, and where they don't slow us down. And that's the thing. That's one of the other organic things that has happened with us is that the learning doesn't just start with a three month. People go to boot camp and say, okay, I'm a developer. Not, not true. It's the, you just got the fundamentals. So it's, it's, a, it's a multi-year process. So we basically create an apprenticeship program in month four. We say, okay, great. You've passed the class. You've got a lot of knowledge. Let's, let's really put this in action. Let us get, let, you're working on a team. So teams that we, from our last class, we have teams that are working on projects with GE Appliances, with Humana, with Kindred Healthcare, with EY, companies like that who are, they're hitting the ground running, but they're not doing it alone. The, our structure is so we, we always pair people up with senior and mid-level people who have experience who can guide them through the process. Now, anyone who's in your, in your audience who's a software developer knows the biggest thing that all of us hate is people slowing us down. So when you ask a software developer to take on a mentoring sort of addition to their job, it slows down their velocity. And we heard grumblings initially about, oh gosh, who do I got to babysit now? But the beautiful thing that happened was that they were paired with someone who had just transformed their lives, who had the drive, who had the con- newfound confidence, and was eager to learn and eager to make sure that they were not a 
hindrance, they were an asset. And our senior folks said, hey, this is actually enjoyable. I like this as part of my job. Give me more. So we actually had senior developers who we needed developing work who wanted to become instructors. I said, whoa, whoa, I need you on the projects, not I got an instructor, right? So it was a pretty cool uh, dynamic we witnessed uh, happen during not just the first cohort, but with all of them. There, it's, a, it's a pretty magical thing. I want to paint my own picture of the mission of, of Interapp. And I'm going to frame this through the, an article that I read in the New York Times, right? Arlie Hochschild is a, is a well-known sociologist. And so he wrote this, this Times article featuring you in Interapp. But what really got me was um, reading the experiences of hope for yeah. many of these, these low, I'm just going to say it. They were poor people, unskilled, poor people, yeah. probably living in the trailer down by the river, right? And, um, and so... <laughs> some, some, is that so? It's, but not all. Some had houses and some... some okay, some. That's to be fair, right. Yeah. But I, I think my point is that uh, we, we associate low income with low functioning. And like you said, yeah. these people had to have drive. They have to have drive. So they're not low functioning. They're smart people to begin with. They just needed a chance. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to read an excerpt from, from that New York Times article just to kind of paint a picture for my listeners, how Interrap is transforming lives for the better in middle, middle America. This is um, one of the graduates, Matthew Watson, uh-huh. who is a father of two small daughters. Back then, he's, the daughters were probably a little older now. And he was once on food stamps. And so this is Matthew talking. He says, yep. after I got my two associate's degrees, the best job I could find was selling cigarettes behind the counter in Hazard a 45-minute commute from home for 10 bucks an hour. And that was after a promotion to manager. Some of my customers were opioid addicts who slurred their speech, scratched their arms, laid their heads on my counter. In the back of my mind, I always think, oh, if I want to stay living here, if I didn't have this job, meaning working for Interap, right? I'd be working that job, he says, alluding to, his previous work as a convenience store clerk. Then one day, Matthew heard an ad on the car radio. He says it was for a 24-week course in coding with an eight-week apprenticeship, which I later learned could qualify me for a $40,000-plus job designing apps for cell phones, he said. The mm-hmm. advertisement had been put out, put out by a Louisville tech startup called Interapp. He said, I immediately applied online, got interviewed, aced the test, and they hired me as an intern and then as a junior software developer, said Matthew. Within a year, he was offered yet another job as a software engineer for a Florida-based company for a salary salary well over 50 grand a year. So this is a guy that went from being on food stamps, trying to support his daughters on 10 bucks an hour in a dead-end job, to designing apps. <laughs> Isn't that something? Yeah, I'm very... Proud to hear that. I think I think one thing that I think is well to note that um, about Matthew's story is that you know his wife and him are wonderful people, and Matthew now works for another company because he's he's marketable. He's he can work for a number of companies, but he started his journey with us. And I remember reading on Facebook where when we gave him his job offer, I didn't we we got a notification that we were tagged in a post. And I was tagging the post and I looked at it and it said that um, it was, it, this is a proud moment in the Watson family. We don't need to be on food stamps anymore. 
And, and I mean, that really, that really shook and that really like, like really did something to me because I personally have, would think there's a stigma. I would be embarrassed to post that on Facebook. But then again, that's, I also grew up in the life of privilege at the same time. Um, but that was something they needed to do to get by because of their situation. But they also did what they needed to do to get out of it, which is the common thread between all our success stories. And we have multiple stories of the Matthew Watson. I can get, I can bore you for hours on that. You have one of your own personal ones, a story of hope and renewal. A story of hope from my kind of experience. Um, you know, <laughs> being an entrepreneur is not easy by any means. And I think that the, there's people along the way that helped me out, not just in my journey, but it goes back to even me being in the position I'm in. But when my parents were were em- immigrants from India in Owensboro, Kentucky, I mean. My dad had dreams of coming to America. He got here as a young 20-something engineer um, in a state that probably didn't have a ton of diversity. At the, well, I can tell you, it did not have a ton of diversity at the time. And so um, I still remember that uh, my dad was, you know, he was, he was a hard worker. He moved up the ladder and uh, people tried to keep him down because of his ethnicity. And, and basically, I remember being young and getting phone calls from people yelling racial slurs. I remember people writing stuff and keying our car and things of that nature. My dad would just, he would shelter me from the real reason behind it. I didn't know it then, but I know it now. I was because he was, he was moving up the ladder and people were getting jobs that other people wanted. Um, so, and he at one point thought of moving back to India and just leaving his American dream behind. Um, but there was an executive there by the name of Mr. Bill Turner who saw him and kind of took him under his wing a little bit. And he asked him, he was, Hey, what are you doing for Christmas? He said, well, nothing. I'm just going home. He said, well, why don't you come to our house for Christmas Eve dinner? Was We were invited to their house for dinner for about 30 years straight. And when Mr. Turner passed, my dad was the one who really helped coordinate all the funeral arrangements, the wake and all the, and hosted the, you know, the, all the things because I know how, how different my life and our family's life would have been if we had to, we went back. I'm sitting here today talking to your, an audience about making impact and doing the things that I want to do and fulfilling my own dreams because somebody else 40 plus years ago invited a young Indian guy for dinner at their house. Mm. And my sister, ironically, and I think this is no small coincidence, was born on Christmas. My youngest was born on Christmas Eve, so that was the one dinner we could not go to. They brought dinner to the hospital that year. So knowing that some act of kindness, some act of, of interaction, of just reaching a handout, giving someone a first chance or telling them that they're supported can lead to a ripple effect of monumental outcomes. And that's, that, I take that story with me with the work that I do, not just in Eastern Kentucky, but Atlanta, basically everywhere where I go and I'm saying, I'm going to give you a shot. It's yours to lose. So that's one that really resonates with me. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, with every story, there's probably going to be bumps on the road and there were naysayers, right? People in your own local community who didn't want you there. Can you talk, can you unpack that? What, what, why is that? Well, the no good deed goes unpunished, right? So I mean, that's kind of, there's a lot of truths to statements like that. There's a number of them I've heard over the years. You know, we, one thing that we did, we were, first of all, we were asked to be there. And I did that under the, under the, you know, 
guys, if you will, or the, or the blanket protection of the fact that I had very powerful people in Eastern Kentucky asking me to come. And, you know, I said, Hey, if, you, if these guys are willing to support me, that's, that's my air cover, if you will. Um, turned out that was not the case. So we basically, um, did our job. And when they couldn't find jobs for people and they kind of weren't able to get companies like they thought they would, they try to throw us under the rug and basically say the program didn't work. Oh, it didn't work. And I said, and I said, are you kidding me? This worked and you are completely marginalizing the, the, the hard work that people have put in by saying that they don't have skills. So when they're trying to get jobs on their own and they read an article about our program didn't work, someone's not going to hire them. Bear in mind, this is 2015, 16, where boot camps and non-traditional hiring and apprenticeships weren't as widely appreciated or accepted. So I, I got angry about that. And so essentially, I, I said, this is not fair. It's not just. And it's absolutely a, a breach of the contract you, wrote, you signed with me, where I am the, my job was to train people and their job was to find jobs. But they basically said that Interact reneged on hiring everyone. And I said, we never said we would hire anyone. We just said we would come in and try it with you. So the idea, and that was a way for them to save face, which unfortunately led to um, really just one negative uh, blog post by a very conservative, propaganda-driven sort of organization. I can say that, and I really said, who's going to believe this nonsense? And the truth is everyone did. Mm. I'm, I, I was, I, so I... I in hindsight, I joked that we were the we were victims of fake news before it became a. a <laughs> um, but the truth is, people read it. People, we already were doing something hard and different. We already were pushing against existing school curriculum and existing school uh, sort of uh, you know pathways, and saying this is a different pathway. Um, but it gave some people who were threatened by us fodder for saying, oh, these guys don't know what they're doing. Mm. Um, and that was very hard to swallow as an entrepreneur because I didn't have to do this, right? I was asked to come help and I did my part and I was being thrown under the bus and railroaded. And, and, I was, and, and my support, while there were naysayers in Eastern Kentucky, they were also supporters. And the supporters essentially said, are you guys out of your mind? This is the only thing that has worked at this level in years and you guys are throwing it away. And frankly, that's exactly what happened. And now when you look at our success in doing exactly what we did in Eastern Kentucky, in Atlanta, in, in Wisconsin and Kentucky and multiple sites and in, in North Carolina, places we're going. I mean, I know that that experience made me stronger and a better leader because of it, because I didn't abandon the people that we were supporting. And I don't, I don't mean like we, we, we did what was right in a time where taking on 25 more people when we only had, uh, I don't even remember, we had a handful of projects to put them on. We were ta we were bearing the brunt of that cost until we figured that out. And, and when that, and that, and that led to some tough times in the business, slowed our growth down. We were, we were everywhere we went, people, there was a bit of a stigma um, because people wanted to believe what they wanted to believe. And um, I, I, I was told by my supporters that, and, my, and my advisors and my mentors that, you know, there's, there's, um, you, know you, had, you had bold ambition to go in a place that but you, you're an outsider, you're not one of them, and you don't look like them. So you were battling some pretty hard things. And 
you know, what's really hurt the most about that was that I was born and raised in Kentucky. I mean, I'm as Kentucky as they come. I, I'm a descendant of immigrants. I, I love my culture. I love my state. And, you know, I know how good this state has been to my family. So I, this was my way of giving back. So having that kind of thrown away like that, my work and efforts thrown away was a bit, it hurt a bit, but I think, like I said, it made me a stronger leader. Yeah. It helped me learn how to navigate these sort of landmines. Um, it taught me the importance of taking the high road. We did not, there's no public rebuttal on any of the statements. There's no, there's nothing. We were completely, we let it go. And that was not, and that was something that some people didn't agree with at the time, but now they, you know, they did. The naysayers benefited from keeping Eastern Kentucky down. And I think that's where it was one of the driving forces. I will quote something when I was going through a difficult time. One of my mentors, the late Mr. David Jones, founder of Humana, said, and I said, well, maybe I, was, maybe I was a little too aggressive. Maybe I was, you know, a little too brash. I don't know. I was doing something different. I, he, he, goes, he goes, Uncle, if you're not ticking some people off, you're not pushing hard enough. And that's, that's something that's resonated with me because what we were doing was transformative. What we were doing was unique. It was entrepreneurial. It was breaking down walls and barriers that we knew existed and some we didn't know existed. And at the end of the day, we have a pathway for people who have the drive and the aptitude to create meaningful, sustainable careers to support their family and livelihood. And that's yeah. something I sleep very well at night. And that's part of the reason why. Yeah. Yeah. Ankur, if I'm an entrepreneur right now in a leadership role, and I want to raise my hand somewhere in a small market, middle America town and say, I want to bring a site to my local community. What does that take? Number one, first and foremost, it takes companies willing to give first chances. So companies willing to give work, give work, just give us work to do and let me be on the hook for delivering it to you. And I will train people locally to do the task. So we're essentially training communities to do the work the community needs. Plain and simple. And we can make the economics work. Offshoring, we're not competing with offshoring. We're not competing with Silicon Valley in New York either. But there's this emerging middle tech layer that we are able to supply and really get people into the economy. And this, it doesn't stop there. Just because I train you for three months and just because I apprentice you for a year after that, you're always going to have to learn another version of software, another new software, another different way of doing things, plugging and playing different modules and, and plugins, etc. So there's a never-ending there's never-ending learning. And in our models, we actually incorporate that into our culture. I mean, we, we make money when we build people out. But I also tell people, I'm going to give you a month, a year to learn something new. So I will fund your training and fund your growth as long as you continue delivering the work I need. And I, we work that into our economics and, it, and, it, and it's beneficial for everyone. Yeah. Um, so someone who wants to put this sort of model in their town, I will tell them it takes corporate commitment. But the second piece it takes it takes uh, partners and, and philanthropics or organizations to provide some wraparound services. Yeah. Some things that we learned, uh, while we have a great story and I appreciate all the things we've done, it was a hard journey and we learned a lot of things that we didn't know. For example, um, we have people who have food insecurity, housing insecurity. We had, on the first day of class, we had a student lose their apartment because the landlord decided to sell the building and frankly, she didn't have the money to go anywhere else. So we guided her to the, I believe it was the urban league who helped find her uh, a new apartment. In some cases, someone didn't have a trans have transportation. So we referred them to Goodwill who has a car purchasing program. 
and frankly, we have people who don't have, who've, who've never made this much money in their life. When you go from under the poverty line to above the poverty line, that comes with its own set of challenges. But we learned, we didn't, they, they get off Section 8 housing, they get off of food stamps, their Medicaid is gone, they're off of these sort of, you know, typical uh, systems and constructs that have supported them for many years. And they're like, kind of deer in headlights, what do I do? I got new bills. We've partnered with a, a, a bank that allows, that, that coaches and teaches financial literacy, establishing credit, identity theft, all the things that matter to helping create a sort of thriving sort of wraparound sort of service layer on top of the, the technical layer. So what we say is that when we train someone in the community, 85% of what we teach are technical skills. And 10% are kind of the softer business skills, communication, you know, uh, workforce, workplace culture, things like that. And 5% are life skills. Having a bank account, having a check account, you'd be surprised how don't, when you ask them, how, do I going to direct, how am I going to direct deposit your paycheck into your account? And they say, well, yes, I better get an account. That's not super common, but it's happened before. So mm -hmm. those things to not, to, 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 to make sure that, so company leaders who are wanting to do this and really help solve the business problem for themselves as well as impact their own communities, um, they've got to acknowledge the fact that this is hard work, it's difficult, and you can't just throw a few bucks at it, you can't just throw a few part-time people at it. This is a, this is a effort, and it takes a lot of listening, a lot of it tweaking, a lot of learning that we have been fortunate enough to sustain along the way. But I have, I have a team who does nothing but make sure our apprentices are successful. That's their job and that's their metric that they're measured on. So we've really invested and really done this in a proper way. And that I think is what helps separate us from a lot of the programs that have not succeeded, have good intentions, but haven't succeeded. And ones with, like ours that have. Yeah, yeah. I think it's important to know that, you know, women are so often underrepresented in tech jobs, you know, software engineering type jobs. And we were talking offline before I hit record, and you showed me your most recent graduating class, and slightly more than half were women. But not only that, it was a multiracial uh, graduating class and also multi generational. I saw somebody that probably was in her 60s or 70s. That's sixties, uh, <laughs> but you're right. I mean, you know, aptitude takes many forms. I mean, and bring someone with someone with that type of life experience and work experience at sixty brings a lot of perspective to younger people who've never had a job before. So everyone has value, and everyone is has skills that they bring to the table. So it's funny when you mentioned that. That is one of the diversity of the class where we had you know over half the more women. We had people who were from Afghanistan, people who were from African American community, from white community. It was it didn't. And the great thing about it is, they're all they all established relationships and friendships during the program because they all had the common goal. Like the, the the interesting thing is that we've done this in rural white America, we've done this in urban black America, we've done this in large cities and small cities, and we've got divert people from all different walks of life veterans, you know, people who are a little older, whatever, they all, the common thread of all them succeeding is they have the drive and the will to succeed. And, and that, 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 that fortitude is what bonds them together. So it's a really, I mean, I don't want to make this, you know, sound a little kumbaya-ish, but, 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 it, but it's great to see that everyone is uniting for a common goal, and that is to get a, get the, pass the class and get a job. And once they're there, they're helping each other along the way. No one is stepping on toes. There's not that sort of, we, we explain, we're not, you're not here to compete and you're not here to get a, get a passing grade. 
you're here to pass. You're here to show you can do the work. And if you cannot do the work, we do not, we will not let you pass. So collectively, the team moves forward together. And that's been kind of the, the, the foundation of our pod model where we have, you know, people from different experiences really help everyone along the way. Yeah. You mentioned veterans. Talk a little bit about the impact the program is making on the military, people coming back from serving abroad. Yeah. I mean, we've in Kentucky, Fort Knox is, not, is about 35 miles away from Louisville. Um, you know, there's a lot of transitioning soldiers and their spouses as well that are looking to reenter the workforce. Um, we've looked into doing military centric training, which we're, we're still pursuing. We're actually trying, as you know, it's hard to get, uh, you know, uh, there's always bureaucracy in the way of every, every good idea. Right. So we are, we're, we're, we're working through that right now, but, but no, we're excited. We have had veterans in our program have done very successful work. Um, we have their spouses as well. So there's a lot, we have single moms who are reentering the workforce. So there's a lot of great stories of, 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 uh, people who are looking for their next chapter and in, 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 in a growth moment. We think that entering, entering civilian life is not easy. We've learned that along the way. So we, want, we look at our program as a bit of a, a safe zone, a little bit of a friendly way to say, look, you're going to sit here and learn this stuff and then you're going to work for us for a year and we're going to you know, make sure that, like I mentioned earlier, we, we say we cram three years of computer science in three months we kind of say we cram three years of work experience into a year. So we are really, it is a really hyper-intensive environment to work at. You're not bored. You're always learning. It's not easy, but the rewards are there. You can stick it out. And we've seen time and time again, people stick it out. Yeah. yeah. You know what's funny about your story? I mean, you weren't, you said this earlier, it wasn't your intention to, you know, go out there and be the tech Gandhi right off the bat. <laughs> it kind of fell in your lap. And then you realized, okay, this is something that I can actually do something about by yep. tapping into the local workforce. Because first of all, I mean, you are impacting people's lives. There's no question. But you also run a business. Yeah. We're a for-profit media. Exactly. And pe people have to understand that this is not a nonprofit. So, mm -hmm. um, so what you're doing has to also benefit you fin uh, financially as well. But Having said that, are, are there other tech companies that are now following your footsteps because they see the, the impact that this is making on, yeah. on all stakeholders, community? Yeah. So, so, yeah, I thank you for your emphasis that we are a for-profit company. And, and, and I would be remiss from my days at University of Chicago if we did not make the numbers work. So I am, we make the numbers work, and it does help. And, and there's a business reason why we do it, and I can prove it. And there's an altruistic reason why we do it, which which I can, which has its own ROI that we, we we are able to have. Not just the feel good. Our 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 culture is strong because people like the fact that we're impacting people's lives, not just slinging code, right? So there's a lot of lot of great takeaways from the work we're doing. And yeah, there are other companies following suit. They're doing it in their own way. They're doing they're targeting different groups. Um, I will say that a lot of them are there's there's different flavors. So just know what flavor you've got. I mean, we don't we don't train work at you know call centers per se. There's a, there's other companies and other ways to do that. Our number one mission is upward mobility. You are going to learn something hard, and you are going to have a career out of it once you're done with us, and you're going to be prepared for lifelong learning. So that's just our charge because we don't do some of that lower sort of I won't say I won't say low level tech work, but low tech work, if you will. Um, we generally uh, let other people do that. So. 
the the great thing about uh, what we're what we're accomplishing as well is that uh, when you invest, when I invest into a human being, I know the financial metrics of what that takes. I know the the other metrics that it helps support, and I know kind of like what the what the earnings potential and also the impact. But so. We, when people thank me, I mean, our, our, I have people come in my office, thank me all the time for the opportunity and chance. I have to remind them that I appreciate it. This is not a charity. You're making us money. We're, you're making money. Keep doing great work. You'll have a career here as long as you want. So those are, so I have to, I'm, I'm very much on message with that because that's how I have to lead um, because I have to let them know that this is, this is yours to lose and you can lose it if you're not careful. Having said that, um, other companies that are doing it, we've actually had other companies ask us to who essentially outsource the apprenticeship program to us. So we kind of discovered penicillin that we didn't expect because they're like, hey, can you help build our workforce or help build a component of our workforce and create a new challenge? It's like, sure. So we have ways we can do that with companies. We're doing that uh, with a couple of large global firms already. We've got others on deck who are giving us purchase orders for you know 30 people or 30, 50 people, that kind of thing. So we're seeing our, our mission take really get really, really get on a launching pad. I mean, we're 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 excited. We've got we got and our currently we have thirty five cities in our in our pipeline that have called us or contacted us um, and and companies. So we're trying to figure out what the right way to expand and do that is, and we can do that with a couple of the commitments we we mentioned earlier. Um, but yeah, other companies. I think one thing to make very clear about the leaders who are listening to your podcast is that. Some companies have realized that they are not built to handle the mentor piece, the wraparound piece, some of the additional things I mentioned that are hard to sometimes overcome. For example, we um, what the, the reason that I mentioned the car example, we had a person who was late to work three days in a row. And we, when the manager flagged that and said, I need to talk to you. Why are you late? And he did not, only when we caught him did, or, or confronted him, as, or we kind of talked to him about it, we found out he lost his car and was, was taking a bus an hour and 40 minutes each way. And, and uh, he also had dropped his, uh, his uh, uh, son to school. And all, I mean, there was all sorts of logistical things he was trying to manage. Um, when we found out about that, we helped connect him to buy, his, buy a new car, right? We helped support him with that. We gave him a little advance money. We helped, we, and we also helped, we, go, we recommend a goodwill. Many, and what his response was that the last time this happened to me when my car broke down, I got fired. I told my manager at the convenience store or whatever that I, I, you know, I, I, I can't get to work for an hour and a half or whatever, and they fired me. So them, so leaders need to know that you have to let them know it's a safe place to, to, to share problems, to, to help, and we'll help you solve the problems. Um, and that's something that we learned that was a really ma- – important piece because many, and even our, even our client who we, we kind of shared this story with in our sort of status review um, said, you know what, if one of my managers had had that happen, they might've fired that person. They might have, right? Because the culture is not there. The, the mindset isn't there. We helped write the ship and coach through that. Not every company is built that way because most of these people who come into companies will fail if they don't have the right mentorship guidance treatment and comfort of that this being a safe place to succeed and to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. It's been a great conversation and we bring, bring it home with two final questions. Personally, what's really tugging at your heart right now that, that you would like our listeners to know? 
Tugging at my heart. Um, you know, I've seen so many people transform their lives kind of with their own hard work that you think that you would, it becomes commonplace. Like, like you, you just know it. You just, you, you get over it, if you will. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, I get it. I helped you. You're doing great. Keep it up. But every cohort, every person we graduate, I, it's very moving. We have a happy hour at four o'clock on Fridays where the whole team gets together and they share story. They give shout outs to the other team members. Say, hey, thank you for helping me with my code. Thank you for helping me through that problem. Thank you for watching my kid while I was, you know, doing some whatever. There's all sorts of things we learn about people. But the stories that come out of some of our most recent cohort graduates are really moving where people say, you know, this is the first time that anyone has invested in me and looked at me as an asset, not a liability. That's coming from someone who used to be living in a men's shelter, paying $45 a month for a bunk bed. And now he's making over $40,000 a year and doing great work. I mean, that still moves me as I mentioned the story to you today. We have, there's single moms out there that said, when I lost my house, I thought the world was going to collapse and I had to lose my kids. And now here I am working at a desk, you know, um, with the help of some amazing leaders. And, you know, they, and, they, and they give shout outs to all our great leadership team and their managers. But we have found, you know, I think that if, if what's, what's tugging at me, if I could send, you know, I wish, there could be, I, wish I could do this for 100,000 people, not just, not just 1,000 people, right? And, I know, and, and we could, we can with the support of others. And the, and the, and the mantra that is to kind of close with is to give work. Give people first chances. You'll be surprised at what they do. Um, and I think that your listeners, you know, I mean, I, I'm happy to you know, share our insights of how we were able to do it. But, the, but the, the key thing is that you'd be surprised what somebody whose back is against the wall, who's looking for the universe to give them a shot, and how great work they will do for you and how, how wonderful that experience really is. It really does supersede your P&L and it supersedes, you know, just making money, which we do, which we have to do uh, as a for-profit, but it's probably the most rewarding work I've ever done in my life. Wow. Wow. Encore, you get to close the conversation your way with one thing that you would like our listeners to absolutely walk away with that may make a difference in their lives? Um, I think a lot of people are worried about the risks associated with doing something different. Um, you know, when we go and pitch our service model to companies, we also know that nobody gets fired for hiring IBM, right? Well, then I have to make sure we say, we don't compete with IBM. We do other things that you need a bunch of stuff. And I tell people, we do this. We are so confident in our ability to deliver great service and quality. We say, if you don't like, I, I get it. I'm hiring some non-traditional people on the team. But if you don't like the work they deliver, don't pay me. And I say that my whole team sales is it just try it, just try it, just try it. And, and I think that's the message I would leave to your listeners in their own way, whether it's taking someone for an IT job or taking someone who's down and out on their luck and give them a first chance, a second chance or whatever, um, do that. You'll be surprised. And, and if it doesn't work out once in a while, know that th th there's reasons for that and not to give up hope on humanity because we, if we continue to find people that are willing to do the work, if you just give them a shot, 
So I would encourage everyone to find ways to really give those first chances at scale, or even just for one or two or three people. You'd be surprised of how impactful that is just to do it in that small level as well. Mm, fantastic. Loved chatting with you today. My pleasure. So glad we connected. Um, yeah, you're doing important work. Hey, if, if listeners want to connect with you or if they want to maybe talk about bringing the program to, um, yeah, sure. to their respective communities, how, how would they do that? How can they get a hold of you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at ANKG. Uh, we're also at Interapps. I, all those come to me. Um, I, my email is my first name dot last name at interab.com. Uh, I answer all my own email. Happy to help. Um, I think that we could definitely, uh, do a lot of good with other partners. And so I'm always open to collaboration. So happy to help. And if I'm interested in becoming an apprentice, where do I go? <laughs> well, I gotta, I gotta test you first, Marcel. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you've got the right, right show, but I'm sure you do know. Um, our website has some information. We currently are going to be opening up some applications in a couple parts of the country um, in the, soon in the next upcoming weeks. Uh, our website, interapp.com, has info. Um, also, our Facebook page, you can follow us, and we'll, we, we're very good at communicating out uh, applicants' uh, deadlines and announcements. So uh, that's the easiest way. Fantastic. Thanks again for your time, Encore, and I wish you the best. My pleasure. Thank you all. So here are my final thoughts on that conversation with Ankur. You know, the reason he decided to give unskilled workers, you know, people with minimal digital literacy a chance and give them training and put them in a paid apprenticeship program and then launch them into a future in the tech industry. The whole reason he did all of that is because he has compassion. He cared. That's where compassion does its best work, you know, to help remove obstacles from people's paths. And yet, Ankur has a business to run, but his impact as a conscious leader is so far reaching that even the government reached out to Ankur for help. This is how businesses can be used for good, for social causes, to make communities healthier and better. And this is how Ankur and his company put love into action to help other human beings flourish. I want to leave you with a mantra that comes from Ankur, and it's this. Give people first chances, and you'll be surprised at what they will do. Thanks for listening, Love and Action Nation. My special thanks again to Ankur Gopal. If you'd like to show notes to this episode, visit my website at marcelschwantes.com and click on the Love in Action podcast. Next week, I chat with distinguished professor Wayne Baker to discuss his new book, All You Have to Do is Ask, How to Master the Most Important Skill for Success. Till then, don't forget, Love in Action. It's what will truly set your leadership apart. The choice is yours. Hey, Love and Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at Marcel at loveinaction.club. That's Marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.